Hello there. Welcome to A New York Yankee in the Heart of Dixie, brought to you by Little White Cabin. I'm your host, Oscar Bronx. All right, let me know if you've ever heard this song. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger, a traveling through this world of woe. But there's no sickness, toil, no danger in that fair land to which I go. I'm going there to meet my mother. She said she'd meet me when I come. I'm just a-going over Jordan, just a-going over home. Well, I'm about to go on a journey, and I decided that's my theme song. Tomorrow, I'm going back to New York to see my mother. So here's what happened. You may remember I told you about this woman I met when I first came down to East Alabama from New York, my waitress in a catfish restaurant. Fell in love right off the bat. Now some time has passed, and guess what? I asked my girlfriend to marry me. And guess what she said? Not till you fix your mommy issues. How do you like that, mommy issues? So guess what I told her? Honey, I'm on it. You know why? Because she's right. I got mommy issues bad. I told you a little about my mother in the first episode of this podcast. She was a psycho. And she was abusive to me. To the point that by the time I left home, I had obsessive fantasies about murder, suicide. Me and her. My girlfriend was only the second person in my life I ever told the whole story to. First one was my old friend, Manny Conrad, who I met on my first ship. Like the father I never had was Manny. I assured my girlfriend I had long ago gotten over those issues. You know, I matured and I lived a good life. I lived well. I was, I was kind to people. I never did anything to anybody else that was done to me. What more can you ask of a guy? But she knew. She knew I still had serious issues. How'd she know? I'll tell you. Mother's Day. Last May, when Mother's Day rolled around, and she and all her family and friends were celebrating, what did I do? I did what I've done my whole adult life. I hid. I went off on my own, and I came back when all the celebrating was done. I didn't interfere with anybody else's celebration. I just didn't participate. I couldn't. Never could. It's not that I couldn't appreciate other people's love of their mothers. It's just that when they asked me to tell them stories of my mother in that same spirit, all I had was poison, and I didn't want to share it. And my girlfriend told me what Manny told me 40 years ago. I'd have to find a way to forgive my mother. Look, over the years, I've thought about forgiveness. I knew it was wise. I knew it was probably the right thing to do, but I just couldn't. But the stakes are higher now. I've never wanted anything in my life like I want to get married to the woman I love. I want that happiness and companionship that has eluded me all my life. And so here's what I did. I looked up an old friend of mine in New York, Mickey. He was a police detective who went into private practice, you might say. Excellent investigator. And I figured if anybody could find my mother, it was him. I mean, I hadn't had any contact with her for about 40 years. Anyway, I hired him, gave him all the information I could remember, and it took a while, but sure enough, he found my mother. She's in her 70s now and is in very poor health. In fact, she's in a nursing home for indigent people, hospice care. She's basically on a deathbed. Dementia, COPD, AFib, possibly schizophrenia. 
She's got no money, and so her care is very minimal. Here's my problem. No way is she going to ask for my forgiveness. She's a first-class narcissist. Everything's always been somebody else's fault, usually mine. And I can't just go up and say, I forgive you, like I'm reciting some scripted line. I've got to feel it in my heart. And I don't know. I really don't. Anyway, it was my girlfriend's idea to take my testimony public, as she put it, to preclude any inclination I might have to hide things or not be totally honest. She suggested I put it on the podcast, so here we are. I don't know how clear-headed I'll be when I get up to Psycho Central tomorrow, so I may as well start by giving you some background, you know, cast of characters, setting, all that stuff. Okay, I'll start by asking you a question. You ever hear of an actress named Renee Falconetti? Unless you're a real movie buff, chances are that name won't ring a bell. But Renee Falconetti became famous way back in 1928 for her performance in a silent movie called The Passion of Joan of Arc. Now, to this day, a lot of film critics and historians will tell you that her role in this picture was the greatest performance by an actress ever captured on film. The greatest ever. So, why am I telling you about her? Well, Falconetti died on December 12, 1946, which just happens to be the day my mother was born. And my mother called herself Falco not just as a tribute to someone she admired, but because she honest to God believed that she was the reincarnation of Renee Falconetti. Attendant to that, she believed with religious faith that she, my mother, was the greatest actress to walk the face of the earth and that she deserved to be recognized and celebrated as such by the public, the press, and all the powers that be in the theater world. Spoiler alert! That never came to pass. It was at best a narcissistic delusion, a delusion of grandeur, whatever they call it. It was nuts, and it ruled our lives. Now, my mother was quite young when she left her home on the Lower East Side of Manhattan to become a star, and she couldn't have been more than 18, 19 years old when, without a single substantial acting credit to her name, she started an acting school. Actually, it was more of a therapy class than a school where she promised to heal people of their emotional problems and to find their true purpose in life through, well, acting, you know, like finding yourself by becoming somebody else. Now, I don't know how many customers she got, but I do know this. Four of them not only went through her class, but became her devoted disciples, and I use that word intentionally, disciples. They formed the Falco Five which she called an acting troupe, but which was really a cult with her as the charismatic leader. And this, my friends, was the family I grew up in. So who were these people? Well, first there was Hans. Hans was the oldest of the bunch, older than my mother by a substantial margin. He was a short guy, kind of hunched over with his froggy, bubble-eyed look and a sleazy demeanor, the kind of guy no parent would trust his kids with, if you know what I mean. But he was very smart. In fact, he was the brains of the operation and sort of second in charge. In terms of his role in the Falco Five, in addition to acting, he wrote scripts, did stage management, he handled the finances and logistics, all that stuff. Oh, and he was a forger. Official documents, like permits, licenses, certificates, all kinds of stuff. This outfit wouldn't have lasted five minutes without him. I did not like Hans, and Hans did not like me. 
Then there was Laura. If I had to describe Laura in one word, it would be fragile. In all ways, physically, emotionally, she always seemed like she could shatter with the least provocation. She was an agoraphobe, she hated crowds and dealing with people, and yet she seemed to draw strength from my mother to do those things when needed. But her role, at least early on, was to take care of me, because my mother didn't want to. Laura taught me to read and write and all that. She told me once she had been an elementary school teacher, but she had to quit before the first year was out because the first graders intimidated her. Her words, intimidated her. First graders, can you believe it? Then there was Lenny. Lenny was a big, tall, strong guy, but a bit of a dimwit. I think his natural inclination was to be a gentle bear. But the thing about Lenny was, he'd do anything my mother told him to do, and she chose him to be our muscle and her personal bodyguard. You should have seen the way he'd push through crowds like an icebreaker to get into the subway or persuade muggers to keep their distance. You gotta remember... New York in the 1970s was a filthy, dangerous place, and it really paid to have a Lenny around. The other thing you have to understand about Lenny was, I think the main reason he stayed around so long was that he was in love with Laura. But he was real shy about that and never let it out in the open. Strangely enough, he was also a great singer, had a voice like Gordon McRae. Finally, there was Plato. You know, Plato, like the Greek philosopher. He was the youngest of that group, only about 10 years older than me. And he was the last to come aboard. I think I was about five when he came aboard. thing you have to know about Plato is he was the only one of the Falco Five who was a genuinely good actor. I never met anybody who could get into a character as convincingly as Plato. Script, no script, didn't matter. He was amazing. But aside from acting, his role in the troupe was basically to be my big brother, and mentor. Now, I don't know whether my mother gave him that job or he just took it on his own, but let me tell you, I'm glad he did. Plato would take me out into the neighborhood and mingle, you know, play stickball, meet people, generally just hack around and have a good time. He was the only reason I had anything remotely resembling a normal boyhood. So, these were the Falco Five. Falco, Hans, Laura, Lenny, and Plato. And as time went by, I learned that none of these were their real names. My mother gave them these names, just like she gave herself the name Falco based on characters in movies or plays. And it had something to do with the dramatic therapy she used on them at the beginning. Take Hans. There was a famous German movie from the early 1930s called M. It starred Peter Lorre before he came to America and got famous in movies with Humphrey Bogart, you know, like Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon. But in M, Peter Lorre played a serial killer of children, and the name of the character was Hans. Falco named him after that character, a serial killer of children, whose defense was basically, that's how I'm made, I can't help myself, pity me. Think about that. And Laura? Well, there was a character in the glass menagerie named Laura. And Laura is emotionally fragile and terribly shy, and her mother wants her to find a man. And of course, it ends in disappointment and heartbreak for Laura. And that was our Laura to a T. Well, it seemed to be, until much later. I'll tell you about that disgusting travesty at some point. Lenny, big guy, too strong and dumb for his own good. Remind you of a character? Try Lenny from Of Mice and Men, remember him? 
wanted nothing but a peaceful life, tending rabbits with his buddy George. But he can't stop getting in trouble with his childlike innocence and gorilla strength. He ends up accidentally killing the boss's troublemaking wife, and so George has to send him to the rabbit hutch in the sky, so to speak. That's where our Lenny got his name. And Plato. Remember the James Dean movie, Rebel Without a Cause? It was like the first big teen angst buddy movie, you know, three teenagers getting into trouble because they're misunderstood or neglected by their parents and whatnot, where James Dean plays the lead role and Sal Mineo plays Plato, kind of like his sidekick. Huge breakout role for Sal Mineo. And our Plato? Not only did he look a lot like Sal Mineo, but he could act just as good, and he could even impersonate Sal Mineo to a T. Plus, he was running away from troubles at home when he found his role in the Falco Five. And they all, except for my mother, had backstories or personalities that resembled these characters. But think about it. In M, Hans is sure to be executed for his disgusting crimes. In The Glass Menagerie, Laura ends up heartbroken with no hope of love and no cure for her crippling shyness. In Of Mice and Men, Lenny ends up dead, shot by his own friend George. And in Rebel Without a Cause, Plato also winds up shot dead, believing his only friend had betrayed him. Broken people who come to tragic ends. How my mother used these stories and these character roles to turn these broken people into her personal cult, I don't know. But she did. I've got a theory, though. These four people each found their way to my mother at a time when they were on the brink, psychologically. And my mother pushed them over the brink. But she did it in a way that she became their parachute. She was the only thing keeping them from plummeting to their death. Now, I wasn't related to any of them by blood except Falco, of course. But that was my family growing up. And then there was me, my mother's son, her flesh and blood, right? You'll notice I wasn't one of the Falco Five, even though I had to act in some of the plays and all, but in reality, I was more of a prop. From as early as I can remember, my mother called me her, quote, lucky charm. And believe me, it wasn't a term of endearment. It was my role. My mother believed that I existed to bring her this fame. How? She never told me. It was like my very presence was supposed to magically draw the attention of the right director for the right role in the biggest production that would make her explode on the scene like a supernova, you know? But it was a role without a script. Of all the roles any of the Falco Five ever had to play, it was the most difficult. No, not just difficult. It was impossible. So what about my father? I remember asking her twice growing up to tell me about my father. First time she simply said, you don't have a father. Not, you know, he died or he up and left us or we got divorced or he's in prison or he was a one night stand or anything like that. Just you don't have a father. Second time she got mad at me and she said, I told you, you don't have a father. I don't need you to have a father. That's not why you're here. So now stop asking. I don't need you to have a father. Talk about narcissism. So... Lucky Charm was my role, and she expected me to produce results. And I couldn't. Of course I couldn't. Let me tell you how it always went from as far back as I can remember. She would get notice that some big new play was in the planning. Hans would get her an advanced copy of the script, and she'd rehearse, and everybody would help out reading parts and so forth. And during that time, she was nice to me, affectionate, 
to a tiny child that felt loving, you know, motherly. And she'd hug me a lot and rub my head like I was a rabbit's foot. And then she'd go to the audition. And she'd bring me and Laura, and I'd sit on Laura's lap while she went back to audition. Always for the plum roll. She'd never lower herself to try out for a bit part. She did not have the patience to work her way up the way most big stars do. And inevitably, she'd fail. And then the punishment would come. Because the lucky charm failed to play its part. Sometimes it was physical, you know, a spanking, a kick, hard pinches that left bruises, yanking on the hair or ear. And it was all in an outburst of anger when we got home. And even if Falco's wrath was short-lived, the others would follow her lead. So whatever she did, they did. And it could last for days. Lenny and Hans made it hurt, for sure. Laura? <laughs> Laura was funny. I mean, even today I laugh when I remember it. She would give me a slap or a pinch that was so soft it would tickle. And then she'd be all torn up about it and she'd go off into a corner and curl up and cry. Of course, I didn't find it funny then, partly because Lenny would see her crying and blame it on me and whack me again. But, and Plato? Like I said, Plato was a primo actor. And he'd often say, I'll take the little bastard outside and beat his ass. And he'd take me by the hand and drag me out. And then we'd just go cavorting around the neighborhood. Or if he had to stay inside, he'd make it look like he really walloped me, you know. And he taught me how to respond like it really hurt, like stuntmen. And he'd also try to distract my mother and the others by blaming her rejection on, I don't know, the casting director or the script or favoritism toward established Broadway stars or whatever. God bless Plato, I tell you. I would not have survived childhood without him. But really, in terms of dealing with my mommy issues, the bigger issue is the emotional punishment. You know, screaming at me, telling me how I couldn't do anything right, blaming me for not sitting in the right place, or looking at the casting director wrong, or hell, anything a small boy might do that she could key on as the thing that jinxed the deal. Or she'd shun me, or play the martyr. You know, like she was freaking Joan of Arc and I was the evil trial judge. The others would follow her lead, and I'd be the Falco Five's resident pariah. Until the next audition, and it was back to square one. Lovey-dovey, my sweet little lucky charm. Story of my life growing up. But I gotta tell you a particular story that happened. This was actually my first real memory, and by that... I mean, the first incident I can tell you for sure happened in detail from start to finish. Clear, accurate, irrefutable memory. All right. I'm about six years old. We go to an audition, and I'm feeling okay because my mother had spent a few weeks buttering me up with affection. I don't remember what the play was, but I'm sitting on Laura's lap in the waiting room with all these other actors, and my mother had just been called in for her audition. And suddenly... I have to pee. And I start to squirm and whine, and I'm telling Laura I have to pee, but she knows my mother's status in that spot, so that's got to be the spot where the lucky charm's supposed to be, and she doesn't want me to move. But all the others in the room start to look at her and hiss at her to take me to the bathroom. They don't want to hear all this. They're trying to remember their lines and get into character and all, and they don't want to be distracted by some whiny kid. So finally, Laura takes me by the hand and leads me out of the room, and down the corridor to the bathroom. So I go in, I do my business, and as I'm wrapping things up, what do I see? In the trash, a comic book. So I fish it out, and I stand there, and I read it. 
I mean, I just immersed myself in that comic book. And every once in a while, the door handle would jiggle and I'd hear this tiny, soft little knocking on the door and Laura just barely above a whisper in a fragile little voice, Oscar, you have to come out now. And I'd say, I'm almost done. I'll be out in a sec. I read the whole comic book. Suddenly, bam, a real loud knock on the door. And when I open the door, there's my mother. And you could tell, another rejection. Let's go, she says. And she's fuming. Into the subway, back to the apartment. So we get back in the apartment, and we're all standing there, and my mother's pacing, angry, glaring at me like she's trying to decide on some form of cruelty she hasn't previously punished me with. And suddenly, she hauls off and slaps Laura real hard, right in the face. Poor Laura crumples to the ground, whimpering, and Lenny jerks like he's been shocked, and he gets this look of total outrage on his face, and he looks at my mother. And my mother turns toward me, and she says, See what you made me do? And just like that, Lenny looks at me like he's ready to kill me. And then my mother starts pacing back and forth, studying me and saying, Lucky charm, lucky charm, luck, luck. And she stops and she says, Wait a minute. Theater people don't say good luck. We don't use the word luck. We say, break a leg. And she glares at me for a minute like this profound idea had just come to her, like an epiphany, and she repeats it, break a leg, break a leg. And then she's quiet, and she looks from me to the others, and her eyes land on Lenny. And Lenny, he says, you want I should break his leg? And he looks like he's itching to do it. So I kind of start to cry, and I look desperately at Plato, and he says something like, no, that's not meant to be taken literally, it's ironic. That's the first time I remember hearing the word ironic. When we say break a leg, we really mean the opposite. I mean, we don't really want the actor to actually break a leg, right? That The show couldn't go on then. And he goes on like this, like a defense attorney, and he's masterful. And finally, my mother tells him, that's enough. And everybody's quiet, waiting to see what she would decide. But she doesn't say anything. Instead, she slowly gets up out of a chair, and she turns and walks into her dressing room and shuts the door. And we all just wait out in the main room. And Hans and Plato start to, you know, like bicker, but quietly in whispers. And Lenny's trying to comfort Laura while he stares daggers at me, and Laura's whining, no, no, Lenny, I deserve it. And in, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes or so, out comes Falco, and everybody shuts up. At first, I'm like, who is this person? She looks nothing like my mother. She has on this long black coat and a nice sort of conservative dress underneath it. And she has on red lipstick. Falcon never wears lipstick unless some role she was playing requires it. But this is different. The biggest change, though, is her hair. Her natural hair is kind of light brown that she wears real short, the way Falconetti wore it in The Passion of Joan of Arc. But now it's darker and long, down to her shoulders. And without a word, she walks through the room and out the door. We gather at the window and watch her walk down the street. And so Lenny says, should I go get her? But Hans, who normally would have been in command at a time like this, well, he looks like he had seen a ghost. And he says, no, Lenny, you, you wouldn't know what to say. And he looks at me and he says, you, you have to go get her. She, she's your mother. You go, go tell her. Go! 
and he shoves me toward the door. I'm six years old. Six. Lucky for me, Plato claps me on the shoulder and he says, Come on, kid, we'll go together. And out we go. Well, we catch sight of her and we follow. We live not too far from the waterfront, and there's this old pier that juts out into the water. And she walks out on the pier a ways and just kind of leans on the railing, looking out over the water. You can see ships in the distance and gulls flying and whatnot. And she just stands there for a good while. And finally, Plato tells me to go to her. So I asked him, what should I say? And Plato tells me, there's a loving son in you, Oscar. Just let him speak. Go now. I'm six years old. I don't know what instincts are, but I walk up behind her real quiet and careful. And as I approach, I hear something. Pretty little sounds like chimes. And I look and see she's holding something in her hand. You know what it is? A little music box. And those notes, they're the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. I mean, it's like they reach deep inside me somehow down to that loving son Plato mentioned, I guess, and I kind of calmed down. And my mother says, Someday my ship will come in. And suddenly I remember a book Laura taught me to read. It was about a lighthouse and a ship. And so I climb up on the railing. It's a wooden railing and flat on the top. And I stand up there, balanced, and I say, I'll be your lighthouse, Mom. And I start to get down, but she says, No, stay up there. Stand up straight and tall so he can see you. And she turns and looks around like she's waiting for someone. But of course, no one comes. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my balance and fall in the drink. And finally she reaches up and I take her hand and jump down. Let's go home, she says. And she puts her arm around me and we walk home. And I'm feeling pretty good. And just as we step into the apartment, she yanks off a wig and she bends over and looks me in the face, and she says, Did you know you were born by C-section? And I'm, you know, stunned by her sudden change in appearance, and I say, What's that? And she says, That's where they cut the mama's belly open with a knife, and they take the baby right out. I mean, holy crap, what a thing to say to a six-year-old. And then she says, I didn't go through all that bloody mess for nothing, Oscar. I brought you into this world for a reason. Do you know what that reason is? I say, to make you a star. I had learned my lines. And are you going to do it soon? Yes. How soon? Real soon? Promise? Promise? Let me tell you something. That was the first time, but it wouldn't be the last time, that I saw her play that character. You know what I called it? My other mother. Only in my head, never out loud, never. I don't know if it was the look or the way she treated me or maybe just the sound of the chimes from the music box, but it just seemed right somehow. I guess it was her best acting. I mean, until we walked back into the apartment and I saw her yank off the wig, I actually thought she was someone else. And yet, there was something missing in it, too. And even at six years old, I sensed it. It was like she was tempting me with this other mother character, only to snatch it away and replace it with Falco. I guess it was the first time I connected motherly love with acting, you know, with fakery. And you know, it's funny. There are things that happened later, cruel, twisted things that make this incident seem like a walk in the park. And yet I can remember my other mother's first walk to the pier like it was yesterday. 
Why is that? I don't know. Anyway, it's getting late. I'll get to those other stories later. I'm going to turn in now. Got an early morning flight from Atlanta to New York tomorrow. Hey, come along with me. I'd love the company. Or wish me luck. Just don't tell me to break a leg, deal? All right. So this is Oscar Bronx, signing off for Little White Cabin. Check us out at littlewhitecabin.com. Don't be a cheapskate. Buy one of our novels. As my old friend Manny Conrad would say, see you in the funny papers. Peace.